Today I'd like to look at the way the Buddha uses metaphor or parables. One of the uh, striking features I feel, uh, and we see this not only in the early Buddhist text, but also it's rather characteristic of the, of the Gospels as well, is that much of the teaching is delivered not in a kind of analytical or doctrinal or, or psychological way, but rather it is introduced through uh, metaphor, through imagery. Richard Gombrich, who's one of the foremost Pali scholars of our time, argues in a recent book that perhaps the, uh, the metaphorical passages are the earliest. The, the, the power of metaphor, in other words, to, to compare what we're doing in meditation, say, with an activity that we, we commonly know, rather than trying to offer some kind of uh, precise description of mental processes, uh, suggests a way of teaching, a way of communicating, that gives far greater uh, range or freedom to the imagination, rather than the need to somehow get a a correct conceptual picture of what meditation is about. And the genius of the Buddha, I feel, is his extraordinary capacity to come up with very powerful metaphors. Let me give you an example of this. If you read the the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishing or the grounding of, of mindfulness you may be disappointed that the Buddha doesn't go into a kind of fine-tuned analysis of what the technical meaning of each term is. I think for many of us in our culture today, what we would like would be for the Buddha to sort of precisely describe what mindfulness is, what sampajanya or awareness is and how they work together. And of course, in many contemporary presentations of mindfulness, that's the kind of approach that is taken, a kind of psychological approach, if you wish. And we also find in the history of Buddhist tradition, in the commentaries and so forth and so on, the tendency likewise is to become rather analytical and psychological, doctrinal. And I think one of Gombrich's points is that Um, As the tradition develops, the language tends to move away from from metaphor towards um, conceptual and doctrinal description. There's a very different feel. If you read uh, some of the early suttas, the discourses, as opposed to when you read the first uh, layer of commentarial material, the Abhidhamma, which is very unmetaphorical. It's very classificatory. It's very conceptual. Now, that's helpful, but I think the problem is we tend to lose touch with the power of some of these early metaphors. 
So when the Buddha does um, talk of mindfulness, he talks of a monk going into a forest, sitting at the root of a tree, and when he breathes out a long breath, he knows that he's breathing out a long breath. And when he breathes out a short breath, he knows that he breathes out a short breath. Now the word in this passage that um, calls out for clarification is what does it mean to know in that regard? Does it simply mean that you, you consciously register, I'm breathing out long, I'm breathing out short, almost a kind of a mechanical noting? Does that constitute knowing in this regard? Or is it something else? To illustrate it, this is what the Buddha says. He says, just as a skilled wood turner or his apprentice, when making a long turn on the lathe, knows I'm making a long turn, and just as a skilled wood turner or his apprentice, when making a short turn on the lathe, knows I am making a short turn. So the image the Buddha uses to describe the practice of mindfulness is not at all an appeal to some kind of uh, psychological sensitivity to different mental states or some kind of uh, conceptual understanding of, of what knowing means. But he calls upon an image that his readers, or sorry, his listeners would have been entirely familiar with in those days, the work of a craftsman. This is not the only time he uses the craftsman as uh, a model uh, for how he um, presents his teaching. There's another passage which we'll come back to later in the week when he talks about the cultivation of the self, of, one, of oneself. And he speaks of this as being like the work of a skilled arrowsmith or a skilled carpenter. But let's go back to this idea of the wood turner. Practicing mindfulness is described as a bit like operating a lathe. Now, it's possible many of you have read this text and have probably not noticed that. But let's just think for a few moments about what that means. First of all, each of us will respond to that image, the picture of the lathe operator, the wood turner, in a very personal and distinctive way. We'll have a kind of a, an intuitive sense of what it is like to work a piece of wood it requires more. We, we can't exactly describe that in neat conceptual terms. A wood turner with a piece of wood is entering into a complex relationship with the world of his work. It has to do with how he holds the piece of wood, the sensitivity that person has towards how the wood is being uh, cut and shaped by the lathe. And, of course, it also is very much 
a symbol of transformation. In other words, a certain important and significant change takes place to the wood as it is moulded and shaped in the lathe. If we turn that into the context of, uh, of our meditation, the relationship, therefore, we have to our breath, to our bodily sensations, to our emotions, to our feelings, is somehow comparable to that of a lathe operator. We're not only just noticing these things, and I think there's a, a slight danger in, in some ways in which meditation is presented that implies a kind of disassociation. We sort of step back and we just sort of distance ourselves from the object and, and somehow eyeball it a bit more strenuously. And so we stare a bit harder at it to see it more clearly. But that image, that way of thinking about it, it seems quite at odds with the idea that the Buddha presents of our relationship to our breath, to our body, to our feelings, to what we see, what we hear, smell, taste, touch, and so on, is rather more intimate, interactive, and transformative. It's a hands-on approach, if you wish. We don't know, of course, how many of the Buddha's listeners were familiar with the actual task of turning wood. It's impossible to say. But I suspect that most of them would have had some experience of a comparable activity, something that they, they do with their hands, something that engages their whole bodily relation to a particular task. And clearly we have the need for concentration, for focus, for a certain sensitivity. Uh, but more than anything else, what the image suggests is... Um, a complete and, and total engagement with a particular situation and task. Now again, I'm not going to tease that out any further, but as with so many metaphors, um, each of us will be triggered in our thinking and in our imagination in a slightly different way very difficult to reduce this kind of metaphoric language to the clear-cut and yet sometimes rather dry uh, analytical descriptions of meditation practice. And as with so many things, I feel that um, theology or Buddhology tends to veer away from an imaginative understanding of what we're talking about towards a rather more conceptual one. And yet here we have the Buddha clearly calling upon um, us to imagine what we're doing in relation to a particular task that we know and have observed being performed in the world by a craftsperson. That's a general reflection on, on how we might uh, work with metaphor. In fact, in many respects, so much of what the Buddha speaks of is metaphorical. I mean, even a word like, um, like emptiness 
for example, is metaphorical. Uh, We all know what an empty thing is like, and now this term is being used in a rather more uh, in a rather rather more uh, contemplative sense to describe something of an inner experience. But it's still calling upon the understanding we have of things being empty as opposed to full. Yesterday I used another parable or metaphor the Buddha uh, speaks of and that is the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And again, it's very imagistic. Um, It's not something that um, we may have observed ourselves but we can readily understand it. We have this, um, and I I want to go back to the uh, the passage in question and put it in context. The, um, the way the Buddha presents this, this me- met- metaphor is by saying, uh, formerly monks, there was a certain king and, th- and that king addressed a man, come now, my good man, bring together all those persons in Savati who have been blind from birth. And then the metaphor begins. So he's recalling perhaps a story that was widely known at his time. And I I don't know for sure about this, but I suspect this same metaphor or parable is found in other Indian traditions as well. It's, It's so widely known now. But why did he give that metaphor? What was the context in which that story was told? So let me read that section out. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati in the Jetta Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time, there were a number of recluses and Brahmins, wanderers of various sects, living around Savati. And they were of various views, of various beliefs, of various opinions, and they relied for their support on their various views. There were some recluses and Brahmins who asserted and held this view. The world is eternal. Only this is true. Every other view is false. There were some who asserted the world is not eternal, and only this view is true. And there were some who said the world is finite, the world is infinite. The mind and the body are the same. The mind and the body are different. The Tathagata, we'll come back to this, the Tathagata, the Buddha, exists beyond death. The Tathagata does not exist after death. The Tathagata both exists and does not exist after death, and so on. And they lived quarrelsome, disputatious and wrangling, wounding each other with verbal darts, saying, the Dharma is like this, the Dharma is not like that. Dharma is not like this. Dharma is like that. And then a number of bhikkhus, having put on their blah, 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 go into the, uh, they see this going on, and then they go to the Buddha. And um, the Buddha says, the wanderers of these sects, bhikkhus, are blind, unseeing. They do not know what is beneficial. They do not know what is harmful. This, of course, already has resonances with exactly what we looked at yesterday in the Kalama Sutta. And then, without any transition, 
he says, Formerly monks, there was a certain king in Sarvati who said, Bring me blind men from birth and show them this elephant. So how, the, how are these two passages connected? Many of you probably recognize, as I was reading out the first part, that this refers to what are called the, 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 the unanswered questions, is one way it's translated. Sometimes it's translated as uh, what the Buddha does not declare, the undeclared is how it's sometimes rendered. And this is a, a well-known passage. It occurs, that this list of things the Buddha makes no declaration about is found in many different uh, uh, settings. It's a, it's a common list. And I think what it refers to are the basic big questions that most religions try to answer. Uh, and what I think is quite prescient about the list is that these questions are still unanswered today, two and a half thousand years later. Is the world eternal? Is it not eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Are mind and body the same? Are mind and body different? And does the Tathagata exist after death? Does the Tathagata not exist after death? Now, at this point, we have a problem. Traditionally, the last unanswered questions concern or are presented as concerning whether the Buddha exists after death or not. It doesn't say, as one might expect, does the person exist after death or not. But that, I think, is actually what it means. I think the, the term Tathagata has been introduced because it somehow allows the tradition not to question the doctrine of rebirth. Because clearly, standard traditional Buddhism recognizes that one does exist after death until one attains Nibbana, in which case one doesn't. So what's going on here? The first, um, the, the first point, I think, is that why would a bunch of Brahmins and ascetics who are clearly not Buddhist, why would they be interested in whether the Buddha exists after death or not? Even the Pali commentary to this very passage recognizes this problem and says in the commentary, Tathagata here means utter, oneself. In other words, um, one of the questions the Buddha does not make any declaration about is whether one exists after death or not. That he seems to um, hold a position where this is simply not something that he feels to be um, worth pursuing as being relevant. Now, um, we also need to recognize that when the Buddha speaks of himself or when the texts have the Buddha speak of himself, again, it's difficult to know whether the Buddha would have used this really strange term, the Tathagata, about himself, or whether that was put in later to avoid the Buddha having to say, I. Instead, he says, the Tathagata. Tathagata literally means 
Um, one thus gone. Uh, we can explain. There's a huge amount of um, commentary as to what the word to target means. Um, I think it means some, uh, some, uh, some, uh, some. I think it means something like the one who is just so. The one who is just so. And I don't think that refers necessarily to the historical Buddha, but to that way of being in which there's a clarity, a sensitivity to what is just happening. In any case, it's the way the Buddha refers to himself. So in other words, when he says, does the Tathagata exist after death, it could simply mean, does one exist after death? So from this passage and from others, we'll see, the Buddha's relationship to rebirth is not one in which he's either affirming or denying it. He's simply saying this is not um, uh, an inquiry or something you need to look into because it's not going to actually be helpful. It doesn't really work to come back to the pragmatic thing again. Now, in terms of this particular text, the reason this sort of inquiry, this sort of speculation is not helpful seems to be because it will only ever come up with a partial answer. The, he draws the comparison of these, these uh, disputatious monks and priests and ascetics to the blind men from birth who when they uh, touch the elephant at different parts only recognize a broom or a wall or a trumpet but fail to see the elephant in the room, as it were, who fail to see the beast in its totality. So the suggestion here is that this kind of metaphysical speculation these kinds of deep questions that human beings seem uh, prone to keep asking are only going to yield um, or are only as attending to a small part of the overall picture. It leads one to uh, a necessarily partial view of the whole. So if we come back to what we were talking about yesterday regarding Buddhism then I think likewise we tend very often to recognize Buddhism to be a particular doctrine, a particular practice, the views of a certain school or teacher, and thereby likewise fail to apprehend the um, living totality of the organism called Buddhism. We only get a bit of it. So such sorts of inquiries are liable to yield only partial insights. We will get a bit of it, but we'll miss an apprehension of the whole living thing. Again, it's interesting that he singles out an elephant, which is a living organism. To capture the totality of a living organism requires an awareness a sensitivity, an understanding that embraces that totality and does not get reductively caught up 
in particular um, partial impressions, like, a, for example, a, a biologist or a chemist or a physicist can look at the elephant and describe it in very different ways in terms of their particular discipline and speciality. But the Buddha seems to be suggesting that we need to open our awareness in such a way that we engage with the totality of the situation. And again, a similar message, I think, is conveyed in the image of the woodturner too. It's an, it's an engagement with the totality of a task, of a relationship, in a transformative way, rather than trying to perfect in meditation a certain mental attitude or, or way of seeing. There's more to it than that. It's also, I think, striking that one of the questions the Buddha refused to make any declaration about was whether the mind and the body are the same or different. Nowadays, this is still called the mind-body problem. Uh, and the jury is out as to exactly how, you know, what is the relation between consciousness and the brain, is how we'd put it today. But of course, if you don't um, address the question, if you, if, if, you, if, if you leave that open, whether the mind and the body are same or different, you, 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 you do not have a foundation for um, developing a theory of rebirth. It's very difficult to understand um, rebirth without some non-physical bit of you getting reborn. We know full well that the, the body, the brain, the whole uh, physical apparatus at death will either rot or get burned or get buried. But for there to be rebirth, there has to be some bit of you that escapes that destruction and that goes on into another birth. And so historically, every Buddhist school of thought has adopted a, a dualistic position. They have come up with the uh, conviction that the mind and the body are substantially different. And this is a, almost an article of faith uh, particularly in, 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 the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, that mind and body are not the same. They're two different things. And yet this goes quite clearly against the advice the Buddha himself gave. Now, another famous parable that... Uh, comes from the very, uh, very similar starting point but has a rather different conclusion is the parable of the arrow. And again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with these but it's worthwhile, I think, to, 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 to revisit these and to rethink them in terms of what, of what we're doing in our practice. The parable of the arrow comes from what's called the Malunkya Putta Sutta, the discourse to Malunkya Putta, that means the son of Malunkya. And this is what Malunkya Putta says to the Buddha. He says, the Buddha does not declare to me 
whether the world is eternal or not eternal, finite, infinite, the mind the same as the body, and so on. Um, And I do not approve of and accept the fact that he does not declare these things to me. You know, you're enlightened, you're the Buddha, now I want to know this. And the Buddha will... Silence. Only if the Buddha declares to me whether the world is eternal or not eternal and so on, will I lead the practicing life of the Dharma under his guidance. If he doesn't, then I will abandon the training. Now again, I think this is quite characteristic of how many of us perhaps um, approach a, a teacher or a teaching is that we want to be assured that there are certain answers to certain of these big questions and until we've got some assurance on that, we're not going to you know, do anything, anything further. We're not going to commit ourselves to any sort of exercise or practice or discipline. And I get this quite a lot. People say, you say in your book, blah, 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 blah. But what about this? What about that? <laughs> uh, what about these people who say this? I want some answer from you here. Then perhaps I'll listen to you. We want some, want some conclusions, want some certainty here. Not this uncertainty you seem so keen on. Um, <laughs> And this is the Buddha's answer to Malunkya, to Malunkya Putta. Suppose, Malunkya Putta, a man were wounded by an arrow, thickly smeared with poison, and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. But the man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who wounded me until I know whether he was tall or short or of medium height, until I know whether he was dark or brown or golden-skinned, whether he lives in this village or that town or that city, whether I know if the bow that wounded me was a long bow or a crossbow, whether the bow string that wounded me was fibre or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, whether the shaft that wounded me was of wild or cultivated wood, with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, and until I know what kind of arrow it was that wounded me, whether it was hoof-tipped or curved or barbed or calf-toothed or oleander. Not quite sure what that means, anyway. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile, he would die. So too, Malunkya Putta, if anyone should say, I will not lead the spiritual life under the Buddha until the Buddha declares to me the world is eternal, etc., that would still remain undeclared by the Buddha, and meanwhile, that person would die. Now, this, I think, is one of the, the strongest um, texts that affirms what we would nowadays call the, the, the therapeutic dimension of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha is clearly not concerned with the kinds of big religious questions that um, traditionally religions are in the business of dealing with, And, of course, Buddhism is too. In fact, 
as I mentioned already, Buddhism, as most Buddhist schools, have worked out quite clear positions on all of these undeclared points. Uh, the world is, in fact, eternal, not, not eternal. Uh, it's infinite. Mind and body are separate. And uh, the Tathagata uh, basically does not exist after death, if we think of that in terms of the Tathagata rather than oneself. So again, we can see the slippage from a therapeutic approach, a non-metaphysical approach, to one that becomes increasingly metaphysically committed and doctrinally committed, dogmatic, has answers to things. But that seems to be a very clear move away from what the Buddha was uh, trying to do. So what matters in this kind of approach um, is primarily the removal of the arrow. That's what counts. The rest is, in a sense, academic. Of course, it's very interesting, but it's academic. It kind of misses the point. It's irrelevant so all of this discussion about past and future lives, rebirth, mind and body, same or different, for the Buddha this is irrelevant. It's not actually what he's interested in at all. What matters is the recognition that there is dukkha and what can we do about it. And in fact this is precisely how the text continues. He says, therefore, Malunkya Putta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? This is suffering, I have declared. This is the origin of suffering, I have declared. This is the end of suffering and this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. That I have declared. Now that, of course, refers to the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths are, are, are presented here as a clearly pragmatic strategy, a therapeutic strategy that deals um, entirely with the question of how do I resolve the question of anguish, suffering, pain, discontent, whatever we call it. How do I actually work with that? What can I do about it? How can I live my life in such a way that I can make a difference in that particular area? Now we've seen already that the Buddha's not talking just about something like depression or some... Uh, some transitory pain and discomfort that we might experience in this life. But when he talks of, of dukkha, he's talking of birth, sickness, aging, death. In other words, his teaching concerns our relation with our existential condition as human beings. And so when we talk of therapy here, we're not talking about just doing things that make us a little bit happier but we're actually trying to find an authentic uh, response to 
what it means to be human, what it means to be born and inevitably, therefore, to die. What is the, the purpose? What is the aim? What is this life for? How can I uh, come through reflection and meditation and discussion and whatever practices I, I do to really address this core question of my life. Now we're going to look at the Four Noble Truths in quite some detail in a day or so, but as a preliminary answer to that question, what do I do? I'd like to look at yet another uh, parable or metaphor the Buddha uses, and that is the metaphor of the raft. Actually, before I go on to that, um, we have these ten unanswered questions or undeclared uh, statements. And perhaps we should add a couple uh, to bring it up to date a bit. Um, for me, the candidates for this um, hypothetical addition to the list would be, does God exist or not exist? And the other one would be, is everything determined or do we have free will? I suspect both of those questions would today fit into you know, that sort of list. Um, particularly the business about free will. Uh, this comes up almost predictably on a retreat of this nature. As soon as you mention the word conditioned arising, everything arises out of conditions. How therefore can there be free will? And yet the Buddha speaks very uh, clearly about the centrality of freedom, of moksha, within his te teaching. How can that be possible in a conditioned world where everything arises out of causes and circumstances? What is curious is that n not once in the whole history of Buddhist thought has that ever been considered. You won't find anywhere in Indian or Chinese or Tibetan philosophy, any discussion of free will. And yet it seems to us, as Westerners, uh, to be a question that's almost crying out uh, to be addressed. My own sense uh, would be that um, this kind of uh, problem, this kind of question, uh, is one that will probably continue to be answered until the cow to be speculated on until the cows come home. My own sense is that free will um, pragmatically is a useful idea because it works. In other words, it provides us with um, uh, it, seem, it, seem, it seems to be necessary if we are to operate as responsible moral agents. Whether there does exist something called free will or not seems a secondary consideration. I think the Buddha assumes the existence of free will, but he never makes any statement about it, and his followers likewise have left this question um, unaddressed. So let's put that also in the unanswered questions category. So let's go on to this other metaphor now. 
that of the raft. And again, I suspect many of you are familiar with this, but let's look at the actual text um, in which this image is found. I think it only occurs once in the canon. Suppose, monks, a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then the man thought, suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches and leaves and bind them together as a raft and supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. And having arrived at the far shore, he might think, hmm, this raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder, then go wherever I want. Now, monks, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? Having arrived at the far shore, he might think, this raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I were to haul it onto dry land and set it ad- or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. Now, monks, it is by so doing that the man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I have shown you how the Dharma is similar to a raft being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. I think this is a very good illustration of the power of metaphor. And it's quite odd, in a way, that the founder of a venerable religious tradition would compare his teaching to a raft In other words, to something which is just a collection of grass, twigs, branches, leaves, binding them together and then paddling across with your arms and your feet and then dumping it when you get to the other side. This seems to be a very, very strong caveat against becoming attached to our religious beliefs, our spiritual practices, Buddhism, and recognizing that these teachings and these practices have a purely functional value. They, have, they are a means to achieve a certain task, in this case, getting across a river, but they have no intrinsic value in themselves. That's basically what the Buddhists say. And again, that can be quite unsettling because I know for myself, when I, you know, even now, I, I'm rather attached to some of these ideas. Um, I, I, I hold on to them quite tightly in a way and I can see that when people challenge me I feel defensive I've got a rather I, I grasp at this stuff I have to confess now let's look at that image a little bit more in detail first of all the image concerns a man who is in the course of a journey someone who's set out already to go somewhere and we'll see, as we continue, that the idea of a path and a journey is, is very, very central to the Buddha's whole project. 
I would argue, in fact, that it's the path that is the goal for this practice, the creation and the cultivation, the ongoing cultivation of the Eightfold Path. So a person sets out on a journey, we're going somewhere. We don't perhaps quite know where, but we are on the move. We're living, we're alive, we're moving ahead. And then suddenly, boom, we come to a great big river. And we're stuck, we're we're stopped in our tracks. We recognize that the near shore, the terms here are dangerous and fearful, whereas we see safety on the far shore. So the task at hand is to get across. Now, what this also suggests, I feel, is that there is an element of urgency involved. That we don't have the luxury or the time to just walk up and down the bank until we find a ferry boat or a bridge. That this man um, has to get across this river and so such a person will have no choice but to make use of the materials that are to hand. So a raft is cobbled together from whatever happens to be around, and in this kind of landscape, we'll find grass, twigs, branches, leaves. Nowadays, we'll probably have a lot more detritus, old you know, water bottles, maybe a can of an oil can or something or some twine, all kinds of stuff. Anything that basically can float. So the question at such a time is not, well, is this particular teaching or practice a genuine practice of the Dharma taught by the Buddha? The only thing that matters is, does it float? Can I put this twig, branch, whatever it is, together with other things that float that enables me to get across? Now this suggests, I feel, that the practice of the Dhamma has an element of bricolage about it. It's a DIY effort. (laughs) It's about... Uh, finding whatever is available in your situation that can get you across. Now, I think nowadays, uh, for many of us, this means to be resourceful, uh, to draw upon things that do not have to have the label Buddhist written on them. It may be that we draw from our immediate experience in in, in confronting uh, crises and, and, and difficulties, Um, all manner of things that we've drawn from maybe our own Christian tradition, our psychotherapeutic training, from our philosophy, our understanding of science, um, various skills we might have learnt in the course of our lives. And what matters is that ability to be able to imaginatively pull these things together in such a way that we can construct a vehicle, a raft, that can get us across the river. And once we've got to the other side, then it's done its job. I feel that uh, probably for most of us in this this room, uh, this is the kind of approach that we are probably familiar with. And I think it's very common when I look at your 
your, your, um, the, the forms you fill in, and you get a sort of a brief potted history of people's um, background in meditation, it's incredibly varied. People have done all kinds of different things and seem to follow their nose to find really something that works for them. So this too is yet another instance of pragmatism. It's also interesting, I find rather touching actually, that um, having bound these things together as a raft, supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, you don't even bother figuring out to get an oar. You have the impression of someone lying on this (laughs) cluster and just flapping around to get to the other side. (laughs) So again, it's perhaps a suggestion that you know, we don't need to somehow become, you know, perfect in our particular disciplines. Everything is very well designed and highly streamlined and very effective, uh, really. But no, we use what's at hand to get through the particular crisis or problem we have to deal with. And then we get to the other shore and off we go again. Now, again, classical Buddhism suggests that the the near shore is sangsara, the far shore is nirvana. But that doesn't quite work in this image because when the Buddha says you get to the other shore, you put the raft aside and then go where you wish. You have the impression that life is probably full of rivers that we have to keep crossing, which I think is, is palpably the case. We have periods of our life when we do a particular practice, we follow a particular philosophy, an ethic that works rather well, and then we reach a kind of uh, uh, a point at which we can't proceed. We get stuck. We, get, we find ourselves going round and round in circles. We're trapped. We need to somehow overcome that particular obstacle. But once we've done that, whatever we used, we leave behind and off we go again. Perhaps one caveat here, we might get the impression that rafts are easy to build and easy to use. Um, Here in Totnes, where we lived for many years, there is a yearly raft race down the River Dart. And many kids, teenagers and so on, young adults, uh, spend a fair bit of time putting together these rafts and then racing them from, I think, it's around Staverton down to Totnes. Um, but what's interesting is that however much care is put into the building of these rafts, very few actually get to the finishing point. A, a large number of them disintegrate en route. So um, this image, I think, does have to be qualified by recognition that rafts actually require a degree of care to put together. It's not that straightforward. So the, um, the practice we're doing, therefore, I think from all of these um, images, uh, suggests, um, as we saw yesterday, it's pragmatic. It's something that we have to evaluate, not in terms of, is this true or false, but rather, does this work or not? We need to consider this practice as therapeutic. In other words, not is it 
you know, the highest teaching of the Buddha or whatever, but is it appropriate, does it work in terms of resolving the pain, the suffering, the discontent, the anxiety or whatever it is that is, 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 uh, is frustrating or is, is painful in life? Does it actually address that? And in terms of this image, uh, to be less concerned with whether what we're doing conforms to the um, the descriptions of Buddhism we find in the different traditions, but rather can we put something together that actually helps us deal with the problem at hand? Now, all of these images, I feel, um, are pointing in a very similar direction. And that's where I would like to leave what um, I'm saying today. And you may find that during the course of um, as the, this morning and this afternoon as you think about this, maybe periodically reflect on how these metaphors, um, when we've had several, we've had the wood turner, the elephant, the arrow, the raft, how, how, how imaginatively do these images relate to what you're doing in your own practice on this retreat? What can, can you, as a, in your experience, uh, draw from uh, these images that the Buddha presented us with? How does that contextualize or frame what it is that we're doing?